I hope you enjoy your morning, and I'd now like to hand over to Professor David Clark, OBE. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Richard, for that introduction, and welcome, everyone, to this event. Um, it's always interesting to be working with Marie Curie as an organization. Um, it was founded in 1948, so it'll have a, a nice anniversary next year. And um, the surgeon, Ronald Raven, who, who was a cancer surgeon, um, was the first scientific uh, director for Marie Curie. In, in the early 1960s, he, he published a five-volume set of works on, on cancer. And um, towards the end of editing this massive set of tomes, he, he invited Cicely Saunders, in fact, to write the last chapter on terminal care, and it was quite a breakthrough for her to, um, to have that opportunity to get her work uh, known in that kind of context. But it was also Raven who um, uh, chaired the group of uh, Marie Curie Foundation, uh, Mar Marie, Curie, Marie Curie Memorial, as it was then called, uh, and the Queen's Institute of District Nursing that did what you could regard as the first ever needs assessment for palliative care that was conducted in 1951-52 uh, in all the countries of the United Kingdom and um, surveyed about 7,000 people living at home with cancer and really showed a dreadful uh, picture of, uh, of neglect and isolation and physical and, and mental suffering and uh, social disadvantage. So we continue to follow in those footsteps, trying to do pieces of work that can add to uh, discussion about the improvement of end-of-life care for people in our country and, and to continue to build uh, evidence uh, in support of policy. Um, it's a bit of a story today about, about this study. I'll, I'll, I'll try and say a little bit more about, uh, about that as we, as we go along. As, as with Richard, just briefly to acknowledge uh, our funders, especially the ESRC um, Impact Acceler Acceleration Fund, which allows the university to put on, in partnership with others, events uh, of this nature, uh, giving us a chance to uh, share findings with, with other people. What I wanted to do was to begin by uh, highlighting a number of um, initiatives that have occurred in Britain and Ireland in the last few years that have, have made a focus on um, issues of uh, end-of-life care in the hospitals. I think the one that uh, is most um, uh, sort of uh, familiar to me and, and, and uppermost in my mind is the hospice-friendly hospitals program in Ireland, which I was involved in. Um, it's still going. It, it began uh, about 10, 12 years ago. And um, the whole idea of that program was to raise awareness across all of the acute and community hospitals in the Republic of Ireland uh, of the importance of end-of-life care, not simply as a matter for palliative care specialists, but for what they call the whole hospital system. Uh, they talked about it from car park to mortuary, uh, to do with signage, to do with the way in which um, non-clinical staff uh, can be sensitized to the needs of uh, dying people and, and bereaved relatives, uh, to look at ways in which some of the daily routines of the hospital can become more sensitive to uh, end-of-life care issues. For example, uh, 
moving uh, the body of somebody who's died uh, from one part of the hospital to another uh, in a way that's respectful, dignified, accompanied by certain rituals, and which enables others to know as the body moves through the hospital that uh, this is, in fact, what's taking place, or even to signal on the ward uh, with uh, a kind of Celtic symbol uh, that uh, at, at the nursing station that somebody has died in the previous 12 hours. Um, ideas about improving the way in which the relatives, uh, the uh, possessions of a deceased person are returned to relatives in a, in a, a dignified and, and thoughtful way. Um, the Hospice Friendly Hospitals program was uh, and remains active in, in, in all of these areas and it did a, a major audit of uh, the deaths of a thousand people in Irish hospitals and out of that produced a set of guidelines which are still current uh, uh, for uh, the uh, appropriate care of people at the end of life in, in the hospital context. Um, here in Scotland, uh, around the same time that uh, Hospice Friendly Hospitals was getting going, there was a short life working group that came out of the Living and Dying Well uh, initiative that um, made recommendations uh, about the embedding of uh, palliative care within the culture and practice of uh, acute hospitals uh, across the country. Uh, and was again flagging up the, the issue of uh, people in hospital who have end-of-life needs and how, how these might be met in a systematic way. Uh, in England, there's been a, a major push uh, in, in, in this area, um, what's known as the Transform Project, um, trying to uh, drive up the standards of uh, end-of-life care uh, in English hospitals, produced... Um, uh, a number of reports and uh, a revised guide that came out in uh, 2015, a very detailed uh, set of recommendations. Um, in its first wave, 25 hospital trusts uh, uh, got involved and, uh, and then uh, a larger number in, in the second wave. And what you'll see when you look at the, um, uh, the recommendations and, and publications that have come out of this initiative is not just an emphasis, as with uh, the Hospice Friendly Hospitals program, on um, clinical dimensions of uh, end-of-life care in the hospital, but also things like trying to ensure that somebody on the board of the hospital, perhaps a non-clinical board member, is taking a special interest in this issue, is advocating for it, is uh, drawing attention to it, uh, trying to make others aware that in the hurly-burly of the acute hospital setting, we, we continue to have to pay attention to uh, terminal care, end-of-life care needs uh, of patients uh, and their families. Um, similarly, in Scotland, uh, a couple of years ago, we had Patch, an, a new charity, Palliation in the Caring Hospital, uh, trying to raise money to uh, advocate, to uh, support the idea of specialist palliative care provision uh, being available in our hospitals 24 hours a day uh, and seven days a week, uh, growing out of the experience of uh, palliative care uh, delivery in Nine Wells Hospital in, in Dundee. Um, more recently, um, Mark Hazelwood kindly uh, alerted me to, to this initiative. Um, Building on the Best, uh, I think started, uh, funded by Macmillan and, and, and initiated in England, but uh, now with a Scottish dimension to it, using improvement science methods, which are so familiar to us uh, here in the Scottish context, uh, to uh, again look at how um, good quality and safe care 
uh, family and, and patients' wishes uh, can be enhanced uh, in the end-of-life context in the hospital, uh, and doing this at a local level uh, in ways that can be uh, disseminated to others, but can also quite quickly uh, uh, drive change and, and, and improvement in, in the local hospital context. Um, more, a bit more of that sort of approach later. Um, the Royal College of Physicians uh, did an audit in 2016 which uh, was producing quite alarming results, major gaps in the documenting of basic aspects of care in patients whose death could be reasonably anticipated. And I think this is a theme that we'll, p we'll pick up on as we go along. How do we reasonably anticipate the death uh, of a person in hospital? Um, they found that only a third of hospitals had face-to-face -face specialist palliative care seven days a week, and many patients were unable to see uh, specialists, uh, physicians, uh, or nurses. And again, making a lot of recommendations uh, in this light, uh, uh, get, uh, very much emphasizing this uh, round-the-clock, 24-7 uh, uh, access to, to specialist provision. Uh, but encouraging all hospitals to undertake local audits is the, is the theme I'd like to touch on later, um, including the assessment of views of bereaved relatives uh, on a regular basis. And as I mentioned earlier, trust board members who take an interest in, in end-of-life issues in the hospital uh, to advocate and, and uh, encourage uh, uh, improvements. So, um, lots of interest, and um, some of it's driven by um, slightly alarmist and, and, and one might say concerning findings that have come out of the Care Quality Commission uh, inspections of, of hospitals uh, in England. Uh, all of this work uh, gathered up uh, recently in a, a report published earlier this year uh, by uh, Samite Richards, um, where... It, it concluded that 33% of the hospitals inspected uh, required improvement in their, uh, the quality of their end-of-life care and 4% were, uh, quite frankly, inadequate. But I think the bigger point here was in the introduction to, to this report, which I, I've quoted uh, in, in italics here, because it really points uh, to a kind of, again, a system-wide issue that many uh, people... Uh, in the NHS and working in social care uh, are trying to grapple with, which is really about the appropriateness of our entire structure and, and, and set of systems uh, for caring in a context which has changed so dramatically from 1948 when the Marie Curie Memorial was founded and, and the NHS uh, uh, began. Uh, this rather dramatic quote from Mike Richards, the NHS stands on a burning platform. The model of acute care that worked well with the NHS was when the NHS was established is no longer capable of delivering the care that today's population needs. And I think ultimately that is the underlying challenge, how we uh, address that. And um, that, it, that takes us far beyond... Um, small uh, clinical interventions that might or might not be made uh, to um, improve the care of people uh, who are uh, dying in hospital or uh, close to the end of life. So I, I think the, the context, our, our small study, as you'll see, it's, it's very narrowly focused in, in some ways, uh, sits in a much bigger uh, context and uh, 
arguably a very interesting context uh, uh, of how uh, in our large hospitals uh, we are dealing with the uh, imminence of death of patients, uh, identifying them, uh, responding appropriately, knowing where they are and, and uh, addressing their needs. Um, the, the story of this study, in fact, goes back, as I've said before uh, in this room, to the hospice-friendly hospitals program, because it was actually Eugene Murray, the uh, chief executive of the Irish Hospice Foundation, who asked me if it was uh, possible to, on any given day, work out how many people in a hospital would uh, die uh, within a year. And what we discovered was that uh, we couldn't answer that question in Ireland. I, I don't know whether it can be answered now, but at that time it couldn't be for legal reasons. It wasn't possible to link together the uh, hospital uh, registration data with the death registration data in Ireland for legal reasons. Um, but um, in Scotland, it proved to be both possible uh, uh, legally and uh, technically, and this is where we began with uh, this study to <coughs> look at, try to address this question of, uh, on any given day in a hospital, uh, how many people uh, are in the last year of life. And um, our study is what's called a prevalent cohort study, so it's uh, a snapshot of people in Scottish hospitals on a single day. Uh, and it's a population-based study. It's not a sample. You'll you probably hear later on, perhaps from Merrin, other work that, that she has done based on uh, particular uh, specific hospitals. Ours took in all of the uh, major, 25 major uh, teaching and acute hospitals in Scotland, uh, where for the chosen day, we were able to link the hospital rec records to the subsequent death registrations. And uh, we believe that it was the first study of its kind uh, to be done. And as you'll hear today, it's uh, now been uh, replicated in uh, two other jurisdictions. As you'll be familiar with, I, I, I'm fairly sure, um, we, we had nearly 11,000 inpatients in hospital on the chosen day, which is 31st of March 2010. Uh, and one year later, almost 29% of those patients had died at these varying intervals uh, across the 12 months. <clears throat> we also found that one in 10 patients almost, 9.3% uh, uh, of, of, of those in our census, if you like, uh, died on the index admission. So that means that effectively 10% of the hospital uh, popular inpatient population on any given day is, is going to, uh, is made up of people who are going to die before they uh, leave the hospital. Um, so this graph, which I, I'm pleased to say is, is often used in, uh, in presentations, it's always nice when you bump into clinicians who've uh, seen it used at uh, meetings and, and, and being discussed, um, shows how this uh, overall finding works uh, both for men and women and by age. And you can see that when you uh, look at the older age groups, uh, the proportions of people in hospital on a given day who will have died within... 12 months uh, go up quite dramatically to 54% uh, for, uh, for men aged over 85. I, I won't dilate too much on this, but when people say, well, that's what you would expect, wouldn't you? It isn't actually the case. If you look at, um, we're going to be reporting on this in another paper uh, in a little while, but if you look at people who are in uh, the community uh, in these age groups, they have much lower 
rates of mortality uh, at one year than, than these groups in hospital. So um, when people dismiss this as saying, well, they're old and they're, you know, you would expect them to die, they are dying at, at much higher rates than people uh, in, in, in the population in similar age groups. So one of the things about the study was, well, was there anything peculiar about the date that we chose, or was it just a quirk of, uh, of something that happened on that day? So we were, we were quite keen to, to follow it up and, and, and really to, to test out whether uh, the, the study was in any way um, biased by the choice of date. So we were able to uh, follow up, and um, we used exactly the same design uh, on uh, a sample of people, a cohort in, in the uh, hospital uh, environment uh, on the 10th of April 2013. So now three years on from the original study, uh, exactly the same design, all people in the 25 large and acute hospitals, 10,500 patients, uh, and this time 29.5% uh, had died within a year, slightly higher figure, and 8% died on the uh, index admission at just a slightly lower figure. And what this plot shows you is uh, uh, something called the Kaplan-Meier curve, which uh, confirms that the uh, two populations in 2010 and 2013 uh, really had uh, identical survival curves, a very, very similar uh, pattern. Uh, this is going the other way now, the, uh, the number of people who survived rather than the number of people who died. Uh, but in, in the two uh, time periods, uh, almost identical. So therefore, confirming to us that what we'd found in the first study uh, was, uh, in a sense, a, a, a kind of um, a settled pattern uh, that was uh, present uh, when we repeated the study three years later. And if you look at more detailed breakdown, just go to the bottom here, um, the, the, the overall figure includes people who are in hospital for surgery and for medical reasons. And uh, you can see that the um, uh, mortality at one year is much lower for surgical patients uh, and higher uh, for uh, the, uh, those who are uh, in the, the medical wards. So 35% of patients in medical wards in Scotland uh, have entered the, are in the last year of life uh, on any given day. So we repeated the study, we verified that uh, the same pattern occurred, there was no significant change over time. Um, we concluded that this was a sort of fairly settled state in Scotland's hospice, hospitals uh, and there was clearly no significant difference uh, between the two cohorts in 2010 and in 2013. Um, the, the impact of the study has been surprisingly uh, um, varied and, and, and significant. Um, for those of you interested in these things, and I suspect, suspect most of you aren't, um, <coughs> we have a, a Google Scholar Citation score of 52, which is fairly respectable uh, from the first publication. And uh, for um, something called altmetrics, which is the amount of social media interest that a publication creates, which is perhaps more important these days than the more formal academic citations. Um, the original paper, which was published in Palliative Medicine, is still first out of 1,000 papers that have published uh, uh, and been entered into the altmetric system, <coughs> and has an altmetric score of 259. So it clearly made an impact not only on people writing 
more formally, but also on people uh, using social media to draw attention to, to and uh, have discussions about uh, this work. And it's also uh, fostered some um, sort of copycat studies done at a local level uh, in specific hospitals. Uh, and these pop up uh, from time to time in, uh, in posters at conferences. If you, if you have any of these that you've seen, uh, uh, I'd be pleased to know about them. It's interesting to see who, who else has uh, uh, done these uh, studies at a local level. Um, the one on the left there done in, in a hospital in England um, we um, are, have tweaked the, the, the project a little bit recently uh, for Scotland, uh, a piece of work led by one of the original co-authors, uh, Professor Chris Isles. Um, one of the questions that gets asked of the study and was asked by reviewers is, well, you have uh, a model of a prevalent cohort study, so you've got everyone who's in hospital on a given day some of whom might have been there for a long time uh, and uh, maybe are going to die there. Um, does this in some way kind of uh, influence the finding that you're, that you're getting? And at least one reviewer told us we'd done the wrong design of the study uh, and that it should be something called an incident cohort study. Now, an incident cohort study is where you, uh, in this case, uh, accumulate data on people as they're admitted to hospital in over a given time period. It could be on one day, or in this case, uh, over a period of uh, about seven days, uh, 18th to the 25th of March uh, in 2015. We looked at everyone who was admitted um, as an emergency uh, to medicine in the 25 hospitals uh, of Scotland. So slightly different design. Uh, it hasn't been published yet, uh, but just sharing uh, some early results with you. Um, and here we found that 22% uh, uh, died within one year. So that's everyone over a two-week period admitted as, as an emergency to medicine has died. 22% uh, uh, have died uh, in 12 months and almost 6% on the uh, index admission. And in this case, we've done similar analysis. We've broken down by age and, and gender. But we've also distinguished those who had a cancer diagnosis in the previous five years from those who didn't. Uh, and when we looked at the cancer patients, uh, their mortality in one year was 57% uh, in this sample. And of all the deaths that occurred in this group, 68% of them were in hospital. And we found that 48% of all the patients uh, that were admitted to hospitals uh, as emergencies to medicine in this period in 2015 uh, had had a similar admission uh, in the year before. So we're building up a bit more of detail here on, thank you, <coughs> on um, a slightly different angle on the same kind of question, looking not at those who are in hospital on a given day, but those who are admitted uh, to, to hospital. And that work is uh, being analyzed at the moment, and we, we hope we'll be able to get it published. Um, but. Um, you can see uh, highlighted in red here that the, the largest single group of people who've died within a year uh, are the people who'd had a diagnosis of cancer. And then the, uh, the 85 plus age group, uh, again, almost 42% uh, have died within uh, one year in, in this particular cohort. Um, so where we, do we go from, from here? Um, we um, have 
had a conversation with the Scottish Government and they've agreed that the study has some merit and um, so they've sort of um, are requiring ISD to do a third iteration of the analysis for the original study um, and uh, we'll be setting about that quite soon. So that's going to be a date, <coughs> we'll have to choose a, a, a date in spring of 2016. Remember the first study was the spring of 2010 spring of 2013 for the second study. Uh, the third study will be the spring of 2016, so we'll have this three-year interval uh, building up. And um, we're now past one year from uh, a date in the spring uh, of 2016. Uh, in a few months' time, it'll be possible, it isn't quite yet, to link together the uh, hospital reg registration uh, data with the death registration data. And um, who knows, if Richard wants to do this again, uh, we can share the results of that um, in, in due course. Um, we've also developed some things in other ways. Now, I haven't had a chance to speak to her yet, but I see she is here, Dr. Marianne Krosich, who's um, had the wonderful success of getting a Lord Kelvin Adam Smith Fellowship at the University of Glasgow. She's a medical anthropologist from Canada, who's done a PhD on uh, the uh, care of people uh, at the end of life in uh, uh, hospitals in Canada using ethnographic methods. She's gonna come to work with our team uh, and we hope stay beyond that um, over the next three years. Um, on a systematic review of uh, more ethnographic research uh, that's been published on uh, end-of-life issues in hospitals and also developing some new empirical research, taking some of these broader findings from our study uh, uh, as a backdrop. And what Marion has already shown is that there's a lot of writing on um, how, on the fine-grained perspective of how death and dying are managed in the hospital context. Um, surprising number of studies, 23 books, chapters in bo uh, books, 150 plus articles. Um, not much is known about this work and uh, we would like to dig into it more and see what can be learned from it. Uh, I think there's a bit of a knowledge transfer issue around this. So this is the first step for, for Marion in, in, in uh, her new work. Uh, and we hope that this will somehow complement some of the questions or, or even address some of the questions that emerge out of the, uh, the study itself of uh, imminence of death among hospital patients about how, how these patients might be identified, how they're being identified, what the clinical responses to them uh, look like when, 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 when that occurs. And again, what wider systems factors might be shaping uh, the ability of a hospital to better engage with uh, those whose death is, uh, is imminent uh, uh, or, or to be expected. Um, these are the publications that have emerged from the original study and um, it's had some success as well, it's been nominated for prizes and things. But the, the, the next step in the story, uh, which I'll hand over to uh, uh, Lena to tell, is the idea that well, we have this result for Scotland. Um, how might this play in other places? And um, we're very keen to see other countries develop the imminence of death study using the same or improved methods. And um, I was hoping that by today we might have had um, some results from England. 
on this. Um, that hasn't happened, but we're still trying to get a study off the ground in England that would use the same methodology. Um, I've been working a little bit with Professor Paul Aylin on this idea um, at uh, Imperial College London, but we haven't yet managed to get the study up and running. But we have managed to do it in, in Denmark uh, and in New Zealand, and as you'll hear, um, for the what was the second Scottish study, we combined our efforts, um, chose the same census day uh, for three countries that, as uh, Richard has said, uh, are often aligned a little bit in policy discussions, particularly Scotland, Denmark, uh, three countries which are almost of exactly uh, the same population and in some ways have very similar geographies uh, to one another. Um, so this is uh, the new bit for today. Uh, you've, so most of what I've said has been published, um, apart from the, the, the latest work from Chris Isles. Um, so this is where we are now. Um, and. Um, I, as much as anybody, I'm looking forward to hearing more about the, the results of the studies from, uh, from Denmark and New Zealand. If New Zealand was in the European Union, it would feel a bit like the Eurovision Song Contest. Can we have the results from Denmark, please? Um, so thank you for listening, and uh, I hope you'll very much enjoy uh, the next two speakers. Thank you very much.